And uh, we've been through a lot. And uh, thank you to all of you who were here for uh, Ray Fry's funeral. It was, uh, it, it was heavy, but it was a joy to be with you. And um, I'm thankful that in God's kindness and his providence, that we have this church celebration scheduled for next week. Uh, just after what seems like, uh, just in the life of the church, about almost as heavy as you can get, uh, we get to have a week of, of celebration. And uh, Pastor Brandon is humble, but what he didn't tell you is that he's the one preaching next week. And uh, he will be preaching in Spanish, which I am looking forward to see. But don't worry for all of you who don't speak Spanish, like myself, because I don't speak any Spanish. Uh, we will have English translations on the screen for you. So, so it'll be different, but I think for the life of our church, it'll be wonderful and exciting uh, as we celebrate uh, a Sunday together, uh, truly as the body of Christ, the people of God. So a uh, special thank you to Pastor Brandon for stepping up uh, and preaching next week. Again, in God's kindness, that was wonderful timing for me because uh, I am tired. I, I looked at, uh, was looking at the calendar and I'm like, Oh yeah, I've gone through the whole Sermon on the Mount and Easter, and that's, that's a lot in a row. So I'm ready. I'm ready for a break. I'll be gone this week at Hidden Acres, so if you're trying to get a hold of me, my apologies, you can't. So uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's open God's Word together. We are at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24, all the way through uh, chapter 8, verse 1. So if you'll stand, if you're able, and read with me. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, this morning, help us to hear from you. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, obviously, we're talking about foundations today. And you may remember a tragic accident back in June of 2021. There was a 12-story condominium in a, in a Miami suburb that collapsed. And it killed 98 people. It was a, one of those tragic kind of engineering, not an engineering failure, but just kind of, um, just, I mean, just a tragedy. That's the best way to describe it. And as they were investigating and trying to figure out why did this happen, how did a building just collapse out of nowhere, they discovered that a reinforced concrete structural support in the basement parking garage was degraded. Also, it was right there on the beach, and the land seemed to have kind of settled a little bit. After all, it's sand, and uh, so it may have sunk a couple feet, and uh, basically the foundation was failing. The foundation of this large building, and so in the middle of the night, at about 1 a.m., it just simply collapsed. Well, a bad foundation is dangerous, 
both in the physical world, but also spiritually speaking, it's dangerous. The foundation of our spiritual lives is incredibly important. But, but, we often are far more concerned with how our landscaping looks than we are with our foundation. We'll spend far more time thinking about the landscaping or we'll be far more concerned with drafty windows than we are with the actual foundation. Now, Jesus has been laying a foundation throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's a good foundation. The Sermon on the Mount comes at the very beginning of the New Testament. It is really the foundation of the Christian life. But we're coming to an end of the Sermon on the Mount, and so today, as we look at this last bit of the sermon, we're going to see themes that have been running through the whole thing. So just in summary, as we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, we've been seeing that Jesus has taken us on a journey and saying that those who enter the kingdom of heaven need to have a certain type of righteousness, a greater righteousness. They have to have a certain way of living. And that righteousness isn't a pile of good works that they have over here, or it's not things that they just do on the outside that make them look spiritual and good, but it's a righteousness that comes from the heart. Every step along the way, whether it's how we look at the law, whether it's how we do our religious activities, whether it's how we relate to the outside world, all of those things need to have something that's coming from inside. Our heart is what matters. We have a whole person orientation towards God. Hopefully, if you've been here, that's not new language as you hear me say that. But we need to be loving God and loving others from the inside out. And that results in suffering now, but ultimately flourishing in the life to come. Because Jesus redefines what it looks like to flourish. This type of life, again, I want to be very clear, having this greater righteousness doesn't earn us God's favor, but it is the result of having a heart that is transformed by Jesus. Okay, So it doesn't earn us God's favor, it doesn't earn us entrance into the kingdom of heaven, but it is required for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. We don't merely follow the law on the outside, we don't merely do spiritual things, we actually don't do spiritual things for the praise of others at all, and we also don't uh, rely on things like money or circumstances to meet our needs. These are ultimately the ways of the Christian. Now, here's the danger. We can hear everything that we've been looking at for 12 weeks now, and we can still not listen. We can still prove ourselves to be people who have deaf ears or hard hearts. The Sermon on the Mount ends with three warnings, and we looked at two last week. We saw there was a gate, but also there's a type of tree. Those were the first two warnings. Today we're moving into this third warning, and it consists of one of the most famous of all Jesus' parables. Perhaps as reading it, even if you haven't been in the church growing up, you hear this thing and this idea of the wise man building on the rock, the foolish man building on sand, and it's kind of like, oh, I think I've heard things like that before. Jesus is ultimately warning us against being fools and against believing that we know the way when we don't and against being content, being content with an exterior that seems like it has all, it all together, but having a foundation that's ultimately worthless. Today, Jesus is asking us, will we hear the words of the Lord of life, and how will we respond? All of these warnings are about a response, and today in particular is about a response. 
how do you respond to what Jesus says? All right, so let's dive back in because we're talking about the wise, the moron, and the master. In verse 24, Jesus starts, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, and then he goes on to talk about the wise man and then the foolish man and these houses collapsing. We have two builders, two options, two proposed ways to live your life. And he presents this idea of these floods, building a house on rock and a flood coming, or building a house on sand and the flood coming. Jesus lived in a region of the world where you have a wet and a dry season. So you have months with absolutely no rain. Okay, when we don't have any rain, we're like, oh, this is a drought. This is uh, not normal. We're supposed to have rain throughout the year. Well, Jesus in ancient Israel and Israel today, you have a wet and a dry season. And so you have these little streams called wadis, that during the dry season pretty much dry up or become very, very shallow, very minor. They're just kind of a trickle of water. But then the wet season comes, and all the rain arrives, and they can come very quickly just a raging river. So it goes from practically nothing to a raging river. And this is the image that Jesus is talking about. When he's talking about floods that are coming, in the audience that he's speaking to, and immediately in their mind they're thinking, oh, the wet season is here. Oh yes, I know what it looks like for a river to just kind of rise out of nowhere and wash things away. Personally, I don't really know what that's like. I've never lived in a place where all of a sudden the flood can just come. But Jesus' hearers would know exactly what he's talking about. Well, these two people, the wise person, builds on steady, sturdy, stable rock. The foolish person builds on sand. Now, we've become so familiar with this parable that we kind of forget just how foolish it is to build on sand. After all, we see houses built at the beach, and again, we don't live in a place where the floods just usually come out of nowhere. But Jesus is talking about something that his, his hearers would hear, and they'd be like, oh yeah, nobody would do that. Why would you ever build your house where you, it's just going to get swept away by the raging river when the wet season comes? You have to indeed be a fool to do that. The word for fool here that Jesus use, uses is the word moros, which is where we get the word moron. So Jesus is saying, okay, there's a wise guy and there's a moron. All right, so that's the language that he's using, a moron. So Jesus is like, hey, don't be a moron. Don't be an idiot. Dwight Schrute just thinks about what an idiot does, and then he decides not to do it. Some of you get that joke. All right, but let's look at this foolish guy real quick. Our propensity when we read about the foolish man who builds his house on the sand, is to say, oh yeah, 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 that's, I'm, that's not me. I, I, I'm not going to do that. But I want to challenge us today and invite you to realize that you and I and everyone has a propensity to be this guy. By nature, this is who we are. We want to build our house on sand. We don't want to hear and do what Jesus has said. So I invite you to see yourself as the foolish builder first and foremost this morning. So that if I see myself as the foolish builder, then I'm opening my heart to saying, oh, I need to respond. If I see myself in the shoes of the wise builder, well then, oh yeah, I don't, I don't need to do anything. But Jesus' very words are challenging us to do what he says. So I need to start with, oh, how am I the foolish builder? Now, we easily see young people today, 
doing foolish things. You know, you hear in the news, oh, there was this TikTok challenge gone awry and, you know, somebody did something they shouldn't have. Last thing I saw recently was like doing too much Benadryl or something weird like that. You may remember from a few years back, five or six years ago, there was like the Tide Pod thing. Like people would like eat Tide Pods and, you know, just really stupid. And we look at that and we're like, oh yeah, that's foolish. And it is, but I think there's a deeper layer or level of foolishness that Jesus is talking about. He's not just talking about, oh, just following the crowd or just doing some silly thing that any normal person would look at and be like, yeah, yeah, those aren't for eating. They're not candy. No, he's talking about a deep heart of saying, I know best. That's ultimately what foolishness is, is saying, I know best. The foolish guy puts his house on the sand because he's like, yeah, I know best. I don't need to put it on the rock over there. I'm going to put it on the sand. I know best. You see, foolishness, when you phrase it that way, saying, I know best, you realize foolishness is something that's rooted in sin. Foolishness is ultimately sin. It's saying to God, I don't need to hear what you have to say. It's foolish. Foolish. Foolishness rejects instruction and counsel. And Jesus here is giving a stern warning and saying, don't be that way. So may we be people who are ready to receive correction. All right, let's look at our first point for today. There are only two ways to live, wise or foolish. There are only two ways to live, wise or foolish. You see, we like to try to do that middle road, right? Like, you know, well, maybe I'm not the wisest guy, but I'm I'm not the fool over there. And Jesus says, look, no, 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 no. You're either building on the rock or you are building on the sand, period. End of story. Wise, foolish, the end. Two ways to live, wise or foolish. You either receive correction, you receive instruction, you receive what Jesus has to say, or you look at it and you say, no thanks. No thanks. Now, when you look at the results of these two ways, again, only two ways, when the, on the rock, you have the rainfall, the flood comes, the wind blows, but it did not fall. It's able to withstand. It's able to withstand the storm. Now, I think primarily speaking, this warning is not about the storms of life. It's not build your life on Jesus and you'll be able to endure everything. Why do I say that? Because every other warning that Jesus has been offering talking about the gate, you know, one leads to destruction, one leads to life. Talking about trees, one that bears bad fruit gets thrown into the fire, the one that bears good fruit doesn't. Those are talking about the end. So why do we get to the last warning and think that all of a sudden this isn't the end? Now, that's not to say that it can't also be applied to the storms of life, but I think primarily speaking, Jesus is talking about the judgment. The judgment, the inevitable judgment, just as the wet season brought floods, there will be an end, a judgment. And Jesus says, those who listen and do, their house does not fall. See, wisdom isn't the result of I know best, it's the result of Jesus knows best. When you look at the result of the fool, or the moron, when the rain falls, the flood comes, the winds blow... The house falls, and great was the fall of it. Here the fool is unable to withstand the judgment. It's a catastrophic fall. This isn't just, 
oh no, and you'll have to rebuild, but this is the end. Great was the fall. Now Jesus doesn't tell us anything about these houses themselves, what they looked like, which one was prettier. The only thing we're told about is the foundation. Only the foundation separates them. So what exactly is Jesus referring to when he talks about the foundation? Because I think in our culture, we actually have a pretty big misunderstanding about what Jesus is saying. So that leads us into our second point. Like what make, what's actually making somebody wise versus foolish? If those are the only two ways. Here's the second point. The wise person walks the way of Jesus and the foolish person rejects the way of Jesus. We have walking the way of Jesus and rejecting the way of Jesus. Those are the two options that Jesus gives us. And I've chosen the way of Jesus purposefully. Kind of that walking and the way, that language on purpose. Because when you look at the, the verse, verse 24, look at what Jesus says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, and what? Does them. And does them. The one who does them will be like a wise man who built on the rock. Look, look at the one, the foolish man. Everyone who hears these words of mine, so both hear and does not do them. The difference gets put in the doing. Only one of them actually does. So doing is basically what Jesus, or following what Jesus has been saying throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Because these words of mine are referring to this teaching that he just gave. This teaching that's capturing the essence of what it looks like to walk with God and who the Christian ought to be. We need to have this greater righteousness. That's what Jesus is saying, a righteousness that comes from the heart, the one who's doing these things. This is the way of Jesus, someone who has this righteousness that comes from the heart. Now, we have a tendency to, I think, misunderstand what Jesus is saying because we learn that Jesus is the rock at a young age. Scriptures tell us that. Jesus is the rock of offense, the stone upon which God is building. So it's not wrong to say Jesus is the rock, but is that what Jesus and Matthew are saying here in this passage? I would say no, based on what he says. He says that he's like a man who builds on the rock. Jesus isn't saying, he's not saying, I am the rock. He's saying this person is like a man who builds on the rock. So Jesus is not explicitly imploring people to believe in him here. There's plenty of other places for that. But instead, he is saying, listen to me. You must listen to me. Those who listen are those who have this greater righteousness. Only, but when you look at both houses, both of them may look good, but only one of them has the internal reality that counts. Because Jesus has been talking about internal realities throughout the whole sermon. So here we get to the last warning, and what do you know? A picture of where the internal reality is what counts. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So let's talk a little more about what we mean by do, because it's not a checklist of rules, but a who we ought to be. Do is used 22 times in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the Greek word for do. Sometimes it gets translated practice, um, but it is ultimately do. And we even looked at that word a lot last week. Even trees do fruit, right? Remember that? So I want to highlight three things in particular of these 22 times. In verse 519, kind of in that really beginning section of the sermon where he's laying out 
hey, here's what the sermon is going to be about. The thesis statement kind of comes in 520. But in 519, Jesus says, whoever does these commands and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of at the first beginning, the, the, or the first teaching block. Remember, there's three teaching blocks. In the beginning of the second teaching block, Jesus says, beware of practicing, and the word is doing, beware of doing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen. You may remember that verse. So at the beginning of the first block, and then the beginning of the second block, and then, and then at the end of the third, in 712, Jesus says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Again, a picture of doing. Jesus has been saying consistently throughout the sermon that your life needs to look a particular way, and what he means by look is not it appears to be something, but that it is something. That something in your life, something in your heart has changed, and it's leading to a whole life of love for the Lord. Now, a couple days ago, I saw something hideous. I saw a picture of a bear without hair, and uh, nothing prepared me for what that was. And uh, you are welcome to go Google it on your own. I have not included a picture of a hairless bear for you. It's horrific. I mean, it's, it's really bad. And in some ways, whole person righteousness is like, is for the Christian the way that hair ought to be for the bear. When you look at a bear, and, you, and it doesn't have hair, you're just like, that's not a bear. Like, it, 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 does not, it does not look like a bear, I promise you. It's like, what is this creature? Like, the hair makes the bear. Now, for, for the Christian, we have to have whole person righteousness. And this is where it breaks down, because yes, a bear really is a bear if, if it doesn't have hair. But, but And a Christian, if he doesn't have whole person righteousness isn't ultimately a Christian. Because Jesus says, you need this in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Your whole person righteousness doesn't make you a Christian. But when we believe in Christ and become Christians, the result of that is God making whole person righteousness in us. So our whole person righteousness isn't, I go and accomplish a list, because as we've been reading through the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a list. It's a way of being. We walk the way of Jesus. We don't reject it. Now this starts, I want to be very clear, this starts when we surrender our lives to Christ. You see, we are all separated from God because of our sin, but in His love and mercy, God sent Christ to die for you and for me. And when we turn to Christ and believe that He paid for us, when we believe, when we say, Jesus, I surrender, I stop fighting, I believe that your death is enough, I'm not going to try to earn my way to you. I just believe I, you, you, you aren't asking anything of me. I can't pay for it. You just give it to me. That's grace. Giving somebody something they don't deserve. And the Christian life is one of grace. God gives us this whole person righteousness. We don't go take it, but he gives it to us. And it also comes to us as we even walk out or walk through the Christian life. So that, that, that's how we become Christians, and God gives us this whole person righteousness. And the danger, especially in our cultural context, is that we want to divorce these two things. Becoming a Christian by grace, where I don't do anything to get God's favor, and then walking with Jesus for the rest of my life. We kind of see them as two separate things. 
But here in the scriptures, God doesn't let us do that. We don't see becoming a Christian and then just doing whatever the heck you want or having a life that's just externally pretty and internally messed up. He says, no, the life of the Christian is one that continually grows. It's not saying that we're perfect as believers or that everything in my life is well-ordered or that there isn't anything I do fake on the outside, but is my life oriented toward the Lord where he's continually working on these things in my life? Don't divorce the good news from that good life. And by good life, I'm referring to it the way Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. The flourishing life, not you're going to have success. You might have terrible failure. You might be miserable. All right. I got a little sidetracked off my notes. My, my apologies. I got to figure out where I am. All right. For us as a church, the reality is, Lord willing, this is not so in our church, but I also know in churches across the United States this morning, they are full of people who want the benefits of Christianity, but they don't want to do what Jesus has said. They refuse to be the people that God is calling them to be. They're content to do landscaping without addressing the cracks in the foundation. So for us as a church, we need to be concerned not just with calling people to faith, but helping them to walk with Jesus for a lifetime. Help them to have faith that bears fruit. Now, why does Jesus give us such a drastic warning? Because this is a pretty stern warning here. It's like, you need to build on the rock, and if you're not, you're a moron. It's like, okay, this is, this is harsh. It's this. Jesus is the authority who alone has the words of life. It's like, why so serious, Jesus? Because he's the authority. And he alone has the words of life. Jesus' words here are not just the words to success. It's not the words to having good relationships. It's the words to life, eternal life. I want to point out three times You know, going back to the beginning, everyone who hears these words of mine, then for the foolish man, and everyone who hears these words of mine, and then what happens right after Jesus finishes? When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority. So Jesus says, my words are important. My words and my words alone have authority. And the crowds are astonished. You see, some people claim to have authority, but ultimately they don't have life, the life that Jesus offers. Some claim to have life, but they don't have authority. And Jesus has both. Jesus has both. And why? Well, ultimately, Jesus is the creator. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3 says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all three things, and then get this, through whom He also, He, who, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we see that in Hebrews. He created and he's upholding all things through his word. And then we see also that he's not just a vessel through whom God speaks, but he is actually the very speech of the Father. In John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. Or sorry, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus created all things, so he's not just the creator of physical stuff, but he's also the law creator. Jesus is not just the giver of the law, he is the creator of the law. <coughs> Excuse me. And because he is the creator, he has the authority to define all of these things. When he is talking about what life is, what a bear ought to look like, what the life of the Christian should be, he has all authority to do that because he created it. You guys know that I love to do woodworking, and there's nothing more fun for me than taking a rough sawn board that looks ugly. It's like, oh, how could anything like this ever be beautiful? But then taking that, planing it down, jointing it, <coughs> Excuse me, Ross, can you get me some water, please? Taking a board that is terrible and ugly and making something beautiful out of it. That brings me such great joy. But I'm the one who's doing it. And so I have authority over that board. The board doesn't get to say to me, well, I'm going to be this thing over here, even though you want to make me into this other thing over here. Sometimes it feels like the board doesn't want to be what I'm trying to make it into. But ultimately, I'm the creator. I'm the one who's taking that board and saying, you will serve this function. I set the parameters. I know what it can and can't do because I'm the one who shaped it and formed it. And God, in the same way, is far more than just me as a woodworker. He's the one who actually crafted it and created it. I didn't actually create the board. I'm just taking something that was already made. But Jesus, as creator, takes something that does not exist and then makes it beautiful. So Jesus' authority sets him apart. He is not like other religious leaders. You have guys like Muhammad, who again, supposedly, God, through whom God spoke, and I would also say falsely, but in and of himself, Muhammad is not the lawgiver. He didn't create the law. Take Buddha, Buddha brings his own thoughts. He's supposedly one who achieved enlightenment or had full insight into the truth, but he wasn't the author of truth. He wasn't the source of truth. He was somebody who was trying to supposedly communicate truth. And again, I would say falsely. You have self-help gurus of our age, most popular books. Hey, this worked for me. They aren't the authority. They don't have real life. They didn't create even the prophets of old. God spoke through them. He gives us his words of life. But ultimately, those have authority because God speaks through them. It, and they, in and of themselves, are vessels. Jesus is both a vessel because he's human, but at the same time, he's divine. He is the creator. And so when he speaks, they are words of life. They are words of life. And the question then for us is, how do I respond to his words of life? When you sit down and you read the scriptures, not just the Sermon on the Mount, 
but all of the Bible, because God says that all of these are His words, written through people. Beautiful, beautiful truth. Do I read it as if I am listening to the author of life, or do I listen to it as, well, it's given me some good suggestions, or this is boring, or yes, God wants me to do this, but um, maybe not right now. Do we read it as the words of life, or do we prove ourselves to be fools who reject it? These words, especially what we've been seeing in the Sermon on the Mount, not necessarily what I have said, by the way, but what God says in His Word, they are true and trustworthy and they offer a sure hope. These words cut against the grain, but they can be trusted to be true flourishing. I want to reiterate that Jesus is not offering us suggestions, but He is offering a way of life. He's offering a way of life, and we are fools to ignore what He says. Now, I've gone pretty hard after, on all of this, and I want to draw attention to the goodness of God in that He speaks to fools. He calls us out of foolishness and into wisdom. That God in His mercy did not wait for you and for me to get our acts together, for us to come to Him and say, okay God, I'm ready for wisdom. Here we have Jesus offering us truth, offering us life while we were fools. What tremendous love of our Father. Beautiful, beautiful love. Praise be to God that He would initiate with us, that He would care enough to say, yes, I'm going to give you exactly what you need in life. I'm going to tell you how you need to have an inside-out righteousness because your tendency is going to just settle for the outside. He says, I love you enough to tell you to not settle for that, to have a wholehearted just devotion to me because I'm good. And He says that that is the best way. When we look at what Jesus says, we often see it and say, Jesus, I can't do that. How can that possibly be the best way? I'd rather just do the external thing. But Jesus says, no. Come to me. Come to me. Lay down your burdens. Come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, this way is the best. So, questions for you to personally ponder. What parts of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount are you tempted to cast aside? When you look through it, what do you look at and say, eh, I don't know about that one. What parts do you see as nice, but not for you? If we're overwhelmed, if you're overwhelmed as you sit here and you read through it and you're like, mm, I want to give you hope and say that God will answer your cries. If you look at this and you say, God, I can't. Turn to the Lord. God, I can't. And I promise you that He will say, yes, I know. But also, I've done it for you. That Jesus lived this life. Jesus fully embodied everything we find in the Sermon on the Mount. And because He embodied it, embodied it He is forming it now within us. If you look at it and you say, God, I can't. God says, yes, I know, but let me form it in you anyways, because it's not up to you. He says, it's up to me. Just will you respond? That's what he's asking for. Just confess. It says, Lord, I, I've settled for external fruit. Confess that, and then say, Lord, have mercy on me, and help me to live this life that you want me to live. 
response for this morning. Just a question. Will I hear and do the words of the Lord of life? Will I hear and do the words of the Lord of life? He's not the Lord of whatever. He's not the Lord of eh, but the Lord of life. And in his kindness, he speaks. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you do speak to us, that you have given us life, and that we can build our life on what you have said. Help us to do what you have said. Help us to have a heart that does not just settle for external, beautiful things, but instead builds upon you. Father, help us to love you from the inside out. Lord, we confess that we have not and that we have fallen short. But Lord, in your mercy, change us. Help us to be new men, new women. May we be the people who truly see that you have the words of life and therefore we go and do them. We pray all this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.